theyeshiva.net. Good evening and welcome to all. Tonight's class is dedicated by Ida Schattenstein in honor of her husband David winning the Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Congratulations, David. Tonight's class is also dedicated in the loving memory of Chana Basreb Aaron Leib Shlita on the occasion of her yard site on the 9th of Tammuz. Her grace and kindness brought joy to all. I want to mention that these Parsha classes on the web began around a year and a half ago in the merit of Chani. During her illness, she inspired all of these weekly Torah classes on the web. May the Torah learning around the world, uniting Jews and students of Torah across the globe, be an appropriate tribute for her gracious soul and a source of comfort for her family as this yard site approaches on the 9th of Tammuz. Tonight we will explore one of the most mysterious, painful, and enigmatic stories in the Torah. Forty years have passed. The Jews have wandered in the wilderness for forty years. At last, the moment has arrived. Most of the older, older generation of Jews has already passed on. Even the beloved Miriam was no more. By now, the young nation of Israel was finally ready to enter into the promised land under the faithful leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu of Moses. But an incident occurs in the weekly portion of Chukas, which transforms the nation's and its leader's destiny. Tragedy strikes. Something happens. As a result of which, the future is never the same. What is it that occurs? What is the mystery behind this incomprehensible story? This shall be the discussion of tonight's class, this evening's class. You can open up your curriculum. Under the video there is a PDF document which you can open up to follow the sources inside. Let us explore the story told in Chukas in the book of Numbers chapter 20. The Jewish people have arrived to a location called Midbar Tzin, the desert of Tzin, a place called Kadesh in this desert. Miriam, the older sister of Moses, has passed on and she's buried there. And at this point, the community has no water. So the nation assembles around Moshe, Moses, and his brother Aaron. 
and they begin to quarrel and they say, Ha! Halavai, we would have perished with the rest of our brothers. Why have you brought us to this desert to die? Both we and our animals, why have you taken us out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? No place to plant, no figs, no vines, no pomegranates, no water to drink. Moses and Aaron come to the door of the sanctuary. They fall on their face and God speaks to Moses. What are the words Hashem tells to Moshe at this moment? Pasuk Ches, chapter 20 of Numbers, verse 8, tells us the exact words. The Almighty tells Moses, Kaches Hamate, take the stick. You and Aaron, your brother, assemble the congregation. Speak to the rock before their eyes and let it give its water. You will take out water from the rock for them and irrigate the congregation and their livestock. Moshe takes the stick from before God as Hashem instructed him. Moses and Aaron congregate the congregation in front of the rock and they say to them, and he says to them, Listen, O ye rebels, shall we take water out of this rock for you? Moshe lifts up his hand, he strikes the rock with his staff twice, and an abundance of water comes out of the rock, the whole community drinks, and their livestock also drink this water. Hashem tells Moses and Aaron, since you did not believe in me to sanctify me before the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not bring this community into the land which I have given them. These are the quarreling waters when the Jewish people quarreled with God and He was sanctified with them. And this concludes the story, as a result of which Moshe would not enter into the Holy Land. Aaron, his brother, would not enter into the Holy Land. Ultimately, the three siblings, Miriam, Moshe, and Aaron, remain in the desert where they pass on and they are interred. Only Joshua, the student of Moshe, Yeshua Benun, his successor, leads the younger generation, into the land of Israel. What was the sin? What provoked God to tell Moses, you and Aaron will not enter into the land? What exactly did Moshe Rabbeinu do wrong in this story? 
What happened? The story seems on one hand lucidly clear, and yet endlessly enigmatic and mysterious. What type of transgression did Moses violate? Rashi, the most basic French biblical commentator, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, gives the most well-known and simple interpretation. A close examination of the text leads Rashi to say that Moshe's error was in the fact that while God told him to speak to the rock, vidibartem el hasela, in Pasuk Ches in verse 8, speak to the rock, Moshe Rabbeinu in verse 11, Pasuk Yud Aleph, strikes the rock, vayaches he struck the rock twice with his staff, as a result of which water came out. Instead of communicating verbally to the rock, which according to Rashi would have given the Jewish people a valuable lesson, a rock listens to God's commandment and responds Instead of communicating that message, he struck the rock. This was the sin because of which he would not enter into the Holy Land. And yet, this explanation presents us with so many questions. Let's enumerate a few of them. Why did Moshe sin? Do you, my dear friends, understand uh, or have any uh, inclination or craving to strike rocks? Why indeed would Moshe transgress and violate the will of God to speak to the rock and instead strike the rock? Why did he not fulfill God's will to speak to the rock? What type of great appetite or pleasure is there in striking rocks? Number two. God told him to take the staff. Hashem tells Moshe, take the stick and speak to the rock. So I can understand why Moshe's perception leads him to the conclusion that he ought to strike the rock. God told him, take your staff. For speaking to a rock, you don't need a stick. Furthermore, 40 years earlier, a similar incident occurred. We go back to the book of Exodus, to Parshas B'Shalach. There too there was a story. The Jewish people are in the Sinai Desert. They come to a place called Rephidim, and they have no water. They come to Moses and they say, Give us water, let us drink. And Moshe says, What do you want from me? Why are you testing God? They're thirsty for water. And they complain and they say, Why did you take us out of Egypt just to kill us and our children and our livestock and have us die from thirst? Moshe screams to God and says, What am I supposed to do with this nation? Soon they will stone me. And Hashem speaks to Moshe in Beshalach. And what does he say? Pass through the nation. Take the elders of Israel and take also the stick with which you struck the Nile River. And Posigvav in the book of Exodus, chapter six, chapter seventeen, chapter seventeen, Perikidzain Posigvav reads. And you can look it up in your sources in your curriculum, source number two. I will stand there 
before you on top of the rock in Chorevi, Kisa Batsur, strike the rock. And water will come out of the rock and the nation will drink. And Moses did just that before the eyes of the elders of Israel. So Hashem told him, take the mata, take the stick with which you struck the Nalvi,kisabatsur, strike the rock. If this is the case, we can understand where Moshe Rabbeinu is coming from. Forty years earlier, when the Jews have just left Exodus, they came to Rafid and they didn't have water. He comes to God and says, what should I do? They they're screaming, they're going to stone me. God says, take this stick and strike the rock and it will produce water. And this is indeed what Moshe did. Forty years later in Kadesh, in Chukas, the Jews again feel dehydrated. They're dying for water. Moshe comes to God, Hashem says, take your staff and go to the rock. Speak to the rock. But we can understand why Moshe thinks he should strike the rock. That was the commandment that happened then. And yet here, it was a sin, it was a transgression. To the point that he would not enter into the Holy Land. Why again did he sin? Especially, why did he get this punishment taking into consideration the above mentioned facts? God told him to take the stick. Forty years earlier, God told him to strike the rock. And why indeed the distinction? There Hashem says, strike the rock. Here He says, speak to the rock. And finally, assuming it was a sin and a transgression, He should have spoken to the rock. Why was the penalty so severe to the point that the great dream of Moses, leading a nation for four decades with ultimate self-sacrifice and complete selflessness, Moshe Rabbeinu led them through thick and thin, through their greatest moments and their great crises, which often occurred in the desert. Moses sacrificed his life for their survival and besieged God numerous times to save this people. And yet, at the threshold of entering into the land, it was taken from him. The rabbis say he prayed 515 prayers to enter into the land and they were refused. Why? Because he spoke to the rock. Because he struck the rock. It seems that the punishment and the sin, this punishment was so disproportionate from the sin. Why did he have to strike the rock twice? If God didn't want to give water from the rock because he struck it, why did he give it after two times? It will not be an exaggeration to say that I think there are at least 100 divergent perspectives among biblical commentators over the generations trying to explain this story. Everybody has a different explanation. Rambam Maimonides in his famous guide for the perplexed explains that the sin of Moshe was anger. He got angry and he called the Jews rebels. Shimona Moirim, listen O oh, you rebels. Moshe Rabbeinu had to be a role model for the Jewish people on how to behave. And his anger was considered a great sin. Especially, it made them believe that God was angry with them and that was not the case. 
Ramban, Nachmanides in the name of Rabbi Nachmanel, believes that the sin of Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the Jews, Can we take out water from this rock? Attributing the taking out of the water to their power rather than to Hashem's power. Don Yitzchak Abar gives us an original insight that Moshe Rabbeinu was punished because of the sin of the spies, because he sent the spies. Aaron was punished not to go into the land of Israel because he created the golden calf. This was just the cover-up sin, but there was really an underlying fundamental reason for them not going into the land. Rabbi Joseph Alba, Rabbi Yosef Alba, also the Ebenezra, Rabbi Avram Ebenezra, believe the main issue was they fell on their face. They fled from the nation. They fell on their face rather than having the confidence that God will respond to the craving and to the crest of the Jewish people. And so many other interpretations presented over the centuries by diverse commentators coming from so many different perspectives in Kabbalistic and Midrashic and Hasidic and ethical literature. There are many dimensions and layers, layer upon layer going deeper into this extraordinary episode. Extraordinary from so many perspectives. And in each one of the explanations cited above, there seems to be a difficulty which still does not satisfy us completely. Tonight, I want to share with you one perspective. It does not exhaust the topic by no means. There are many more layers of depth in this discussion itself which we will present. But at least let us begin scratching the surface of the story. And for this we introduce an enigmatic midrash. In your curriculum, source number three. Yalkut Shemoini, Parshas Chukas Remez Tavshin Samach I'm going to read it inside. Says the midrash. You should speak to the rock. It doesn't say strike the rock. Omar Shanar Kotten Rabbi Makeu Malamdoi. Hashem told Moshe, when the child is young, his teacher may at times strike him, hit him, and teach him. When he grows older, he chastises him only through words. Hashem told Moshe, when this rock was small, was a little child, you stroke him. But now you must speak to the rock. Teach it one chapter of Torah, and it will produce its water. The Midrash is strange. What does hitting or talking to a rock have to do with educating a child? Obviously, the Midrash sees the story not just a story which tells of a person physically going over to a rock and striking it with a stick, but it also captures a moral, ethical story about the relationships between people. It addresses an issue connected to education and essentially leadership. How are we to understand this cryptic and brief Midrashic commentary? 
There is one more critical difference between the story in Beshalach and the story in Chukas. In both cases, Hashem tells Moshe to go to the rock and to extract water from the rock. But the term employed for the rock is different. In Beshalach, the rock is defined as a tzur. In Chukas, the rock is defined as a sela. Both words in Hebrew mean a rock. But why the distinction? In Beshalach tzur, in Chukas sela. At first glance, it may seem as an insignificant difference. What's the difference? Rock, rock, take the water out of the rock. But upon deeper reflection, we will discover that in this singular change between the term tzur and term sela, we have captured the essence of the story. I am a rock, goes the famous ballad. A rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. Here is the question. How do you impact a rock? How do you transform a crude, coarse, and stone-like mind and heart to become a source of water, wisdom, inspiration, enlightenment? which could quench the thirst of parched souls and irrigate humanity thirsty for water. How do you open a locked heart? How do you move an unmoved soul? Do you smite the rock or do you speak to it? Do you transform a rock by force, by coercion, or do you negotiate with it verbally, attempting to explain, persuade, teach, enlighten? There are two methods. You can strike the rock, you can speak to the rock. Now, when we talk about striking the rock, we do not necessarily mean physically striking the human rock. It includes that too, but not only. In one of the discourses discussing this, there is a lovely insight. What is the first story about Moses? Where do we discover Moses for the first time? In what location? What is our first relationship with Moshe Rabbeinu? What is our first encounter with this great leader? He grows up in a palace. He comes out to his brothers. The first scene in Shmois, he sees an Egyptian beating a Jew. And what does Moses do? He looks here, he looks there, there's nobody present. He strikes the Egyptian. And he hides him in the sand. He saves the Jew from a certain death. A brutal death in the hands of an Egyptian tyrant. How did he strike the Egyptian? Rashi says, Shame HaMafayrish. He uttered the unknowable, essential name of God. And the Egyptian died. Yet it is called Vayach. He struck the Egyptian. How? Verbally. So you see, striking the human rock 
and trying to get water out of a rock can also happen through words. And yet it's called striking. Because there are two types of communication, there are two types of talking. You can strike with your words and you can speak with your words. There are words which smite, which strike, which force, which coerce, which command, which instruct. One way of dealing with a rock is you instruct the rock, you give the rock orders, you force the rock. You smite the rock, you hit the rock until it understands and it starts giving water. But there's another method, persuasion, explanation, enlightenment. Which path is right and which path is wrong? What do you think? The truth is, it depends on the, depends on the situation. If the human being finds himself or herself in a primitive state, in an undeveloped state where he or she is simply unrefined and incapable of appreciating, of understanding, of comprehending a deeper truth, you have no way to get to the rack but by authority, coercion, instructions. You take the staff, whether the physical staff, or the conceptual staff, and with your words, you impose your authority upon the rock for it to produce water. But if you're dealing already with somebody who is more refined and sensitive, and is capable of appreciating the idea behind your message, now, coercion is not the method. Now, persuasion is the proper methodology to employ. When the Jews just came out of Egypt, they were fresh slaves. 210 years in a foreign land. For close to a century, they were subjugated by a morally depraved society. All of their rights were taken from them. They were tortured. There was an attempt for genocide. They were slave laborers in the concentration camps which Pharaoh, the emperor of Egypt, created. They were slaves. They had the mentality of slaves. They had the attitude of slaves. They suffered like slaves. Slaves are accustomed to instructions. That's what they respond to best. Commandments. Authority. This is the way it is. This is what slaves respond to. They respond to orders. At this time, they had to be struck. But they traveled for 40 years in a desert. These travels were not just hanging out in the desert. Each year, each month, each week, they advanced. They progressed emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, intellectually. Forty years later, the Jewish people were in a different state. Now God tells Moses, Speak to the rock. Slaves respond to orders. Free people do not. They must be educated, informed, taught, instructed, persuaded. Now we can understand the words in the Medrash and the al what does the Al-Qur'an say? There is the difference between the child and the adult. Kshanar cut him when the child is a baby. Sometimes you need to strike the rock. There's no other way. 
The child is incapable of understanding anything else but a clear, decisive instruction and commandment based on discipline with clear penalties and strength. But when the child grows up, when the rack grows up and develops, now the Medrash says, you can't strike it anymore. Now you must speak to it. This is not just about a child and an adult. This is true within an adult himself or herself. It's true in each and every one of us. Different times in our life, different periods in our life, different stages in our life. Sometimes I am in a state which is very crass, very crude, very uh, gross, very undeveloped and unrefined. I am not responding to a message of enlightenment. I'm not responding to a deeper message to verbal communication. I'm incapable of understanding it. I'm just not in that state. At this moment what I need is coercion, discipline, decisive marching orders. This is how you do it. I need to take a stick and strike the rock and say, give water. But sometimes you're in a more elevated state. You're in a more sensitive state. Your soul is more transparent. And now, what we need are words. Not words that strike. Words that communicate. Words that inspire. Words that explain. Words that enlighten. Depends on your state of mind. You know the anecdote, the Jew comes to the bank, runs into the bank, 5.01 p.m., I have to make a deposit. And the woman standing there, the teller says, I'm sorry, 5 o'clock we're closed, you can't make a deposit anymore today. I must make a deposit, it's an emergency, I'm sorry, it's 5.01. He says, what's the difference, one minute? She says, listen, 5 o'clock, all the computers go down, everything shuts down, no records. It's impossible to make a deposit now. And he starts screaming and hollering. This is unfair. It's just a minute. And I was stuck somewhere and it wasn't my fault. And this is immoral and unethical. And she explains to him that she can't. It's not about her. It's about the systems. And he does not let go, nudging and driving the poor woman crazy. Finally, she calls out the manager. The manager comes out. He's a big, muscular fellow. What do you want? And the man starts saying, it's only 501 and I want to be able to make a deposit. Let me make a deposit right now. The manager comes over to him and gives him a punch in his face. And he gets up and he says, okay, have a good evening. And he's about to leave the bank. And the woman approaches him and says, I just have to ask you something. I've just been speaking to you and explaining to you and saying, it's 501, the system goes down and you are hollering and protesting. This guy comes, gives you a punch, and you're fine, you're leaving. Why? He says, you don't understand. You told me. He explained it to me. You see, for some people, in some cases, explaining comes through a very different method. They don't understand words. When you think you're explaining a message to somebody, you're not explaining anything to them. They don't understand what you're talking about. You take a staff, you strike the rock. Oh, now he understands. Sometimes, in our hypersensitivity, we're communicating a message that some people don't understand. 
A child is running through the street. You'll start explaining to him the nature of cars. He doesn't understand. He understands if you take him and you slap him back. There's another story. There was a Jew who put in an advertisement in the newspaper that he sells a donkey which responds to words. You don't have to strike the donkey. You don't have to hit the donkey. You talk to the donkey and it follows orders. So this guy got very excited. He comes, how much? $50,000. He pays the $50,000. He takes the donkey and he decides to make an experiment. He tells the donkey, move. The donkey doesn't respond. Move. The donkey doesn't do anything. I told you to move. And the stubborn donkey remains in one place. So he comes to the cell. He says, you're a thief. You told me that I don't have to strike the donkey. I can speak to the donkey. I'm talking and talking and talking. I let some lump. I'm talking to the wall. The donkey is not moving. The seller says, let me show you how to do it. Comes over to the donkey. Takes a stick. He knocks the donkey on its back. And he says, go, go, go. And the donkey runs. He says, you see? I told the donkey to go and it went. He says, hey, you didn't tell the donkey to go. First you struck the donkey. He says, no, that was just to get its attention. Once I got its attention, now I said, go, it went. Again, when we talk about striking the rock, sometimes they're striking physically. In certain situations, extreme situations. But sometimes the approach, even verbally, is an approach that strikes. And sometimes the approach verbally is an approach that doesn't strike, but enlightens, explains, persuades, shows, demonstrates. One is not right or wrong. You just have to know who is the child you're dealing with. Who is the person you're dealing with. And the first one you have to know this with is yourself. There are times when you can talk to yourself, <laughs> and no pun intended, and there are times when you have to give yourself a patch. You have to strike yourself. This is the difference now between Sur and Salah. In Beshalach, God says, strike the Sur. In Chukas, Speak to the cellar. Tzur and cellar both mean a rock, but they're a little different. Tzur is a rock which is not just hard on the exterior, it's also rocky in the interior. It's rock through and through. Cellar is a rock on the exterior, but inside the cellar there's moist. Now here, let us discover a wonderful thing about the Hebrew language which is very meticulous. Take the word Selah. The word Selah has three letters. Samach, Lamed, Ayin. Samach is spelled Samach Mem Chof. What's the middle letter of Samach when it's spelled out fully? Samach is Samach Mem Chof. Samach. What's the middle letter? Mem. Lamed, the second letter of Selah, spell it fully, Lamed. Lamed is Lamed Mem Dalid. Lamed. What is the middle letter? Mem. Take the third letter of Selah, Ayin. 
Spell out that letter Ayin fully. Ayin. Ayin. Yud. Langenon. What is the middle letter of Ayin? Yud. So the middle, middle letter of Samach is Mem. The middle letter of Lamed is Mem. The middle, middle letter of Ayin is Yud. So you have Mem. Yud Mem. What does it make up? It makes the word Mayim. In other words, the Selah on the outside, on the surface, is hard. It's rock-like. I'm a rock. But if you go deep into it, if you peel away the layers, the external strata, and you penetrate to the depth of the cellar, if you go to the middle of the cellar, the middle of the Samach Mem, the middle of the Lama, the middle of the Ayin, you'll find water, you'll discover water. Tzur lacks that property. Tzur is fully rock-like on the outside and on the inside. So it represents two states of consciousness. Tzur is the rock which even if you penetrate deeply and you peel away the outer layers, you won't find water. The Tzur is incapable of finding within itself the water, so you have to strike it. It can only respond to your authority. But the Selah, you must help the Selah find its own water. Let's take this a step deeper. And here we'll employ a little bit of numerology. If it's a little too confusing for you, don't worry about. Don't worry about it. But for a few moments, let's take this to one deeper level. Elevated a notch, as they say. We'll become familiar a little bit with the world, some ideas in the world of gematria, very famous in Kabbalah, the world of numerology. In the Hebrew Bible and the Tanakh, we often find... The word Sur associated with God's name Elohim. And the word Selah associated with God's name Yutke Vovke. For example, Tsur Levavi Vichelki Elohim Leoilam, David says in Tehillim and Psalms. Or Hashem Sili, Hashem is my rock. The connection is not. The, this difference is not random. There are other instances. Tzur is associated with Elohim and Selah with Hashem, with Yudke Vavke, Havaya. It's not a coincidence. Deeply connected to the very word Tzur and the very word Selah. What is the numerology of the word Tzur? Tzadik, Vav Reish, makes up the number 296. Tzadik is 90, Vav is 6, Reish is 200, 296. What about Elohim? If you spell out Elohim fully, the first letter of Elohim is Aleph. Aleph is Aleph Lamet Fei. That makes up the number 111. Aleph 1, Lamet 30, Fei 80, 111. The second letter of Elohim is Lamet. Spell out Lamet fully. Lamet Mem Dalet makes up 74. The third letter of Elohim is Hey. Elohim, hey, hey, how do you spell out hey fully? Hey, 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 ten. Next letter of Elohim, Yud, Yud Vav Dalet, Yud, spelled out fully, makes up twenty. Yud is ten, Vav is six, Dalet is four, ten, six, and four, according to the latest mathematical revelations, is twenty. Mem, the final Mem of Elohim, Mem, spell out Mem, 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 Mem is 80, 40, 40, 80. So you had 111, 
74, 10, 20, and 80 makes up 295. Im So Elohim is 295. Now often in the world of the Gematria we include also the whole word. The concept that there's a word here, Elohim, that's one more. So from 295 we take it to 296. Tzur and Elohim share the Gematria because Tzur is associated with Elohim. Now take Selah. Selah, the numerology of Selah is 160. Samach is 60, Lamed is 30, Ayin is 70, 160. Now take the name Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. And here we have an interesting calculation. In Kabbalistic terminology, it's known as Hakka'a, which means we strike one letter upon another letter. Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. Yud is 10, Hey is 5, Vav is 6, Hey is 5. But the way we do it is this. Each letter is juxtaposed with the following letter and the preceding letter. And the numerology and the mathematical calculation is based on the relationship between two letters which are close to each other. So when you have yud hey vav hey, the first is not the yud in isolation, but the yud in connection with the hey. So the yud in connection with the hey would be 10 times 5. Yud is 10, hey is 5. 10 times 5, which makes up 50. Next is the hay. Next is the hay, right? So we have 5 times 10, which makes up, of course, 50. So 10 times 5, 50. 5 times 10, 50. Next is what? The vav. So when you have the vav, so Vav is 6. Vav times hey. 6 times 5. So what do you have? 30. So you see what we did? Yud times hey. Hey times Yud. Now we did Vav times hey. 6 times 5. So we have 30. What's the last one? Hey Vav. 5 times 6. 30. Altogether, 160. Sellers, 160. And the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He, according to this calculation, is also 160. Why is Sur then associated with Elakim and Sela with Yudke Vavke? So we know that God has two names. Elakim represents the name of concealment. Elakim is 86, which is the same gematria like Hateva nature, the way God conceals himself within nature. Elakim represents the attribute of judgment, of symptom, of restriction, of limitation. Elakim represents a consciousness which is based on concealment. Havaya Yudke Vavke, which is Haya Haivivya, he was, he is, and he will be in one word, represents the name of transcendence of infinity, that which is supernatural, that which is beyond nature. On the level of Sur when you're filled with filled with concealments, the only way to get to the water is by striking. Challenging in a very tough and strong way. In Sela, where the person is permeated with a much higher state of consciousness, connected to revelation, to yud Vavke, which is beyond nature, which is beyond concealment, it's the name of revelation, not the name of concealment, because God has the capacity to conceal Himself. God has the capacity to express Himself in the state of consciousness of Sela. You speak to the rock. And therefore, in Beshalach, God says, strike the tzur. In 
Chukasi says, speak to the Sela. To a tzur, a tzur you strike. A Sela you communicate with. Forty years ago, the Jewish people were in a state of tzur. So God told Moses, Moshe, strike them. Now the Jewish people were in a state of Sela. God tells Moshe, speak to them. There is a very interesting verse in Parshish Hazinu. And here too you have it in your curriculum. Moshe Rabbeinu says in Hazinu, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 13, He nursed them, God gave the Jewish people honey from the rock and oil from the tzur. Honey from the sela, oil from the tzur. What's the difference between honey and oil? Honey, you get, oil you get from the olives. But how do you extract the honey, the oil from the olives? You have to crush the olives. The rabbis say, in order to get oil out of the olives, you have to crush the olive, and then you have the oil. How about honey? You extract honey from the beehives not through pressure and coercion and through crushing. But you extract it peacefully, easily. So honey comes from the cellar, which represents the type of rock, which when you go a little deeper, you can extract the water in an easier fashion. Shemen is associated with tzur. The Jewish people 40 years ago just came from Egypt, a place of Mitzrayim, of constraints. Mitzrayim is also associated with the word tzur, tzadik resh. Now they were entering into the Holy Land, which is described as an Eretz Zavas Chalavadvash, a land which flows with milk and honey. Honey you take from the cellar. A cellar you don't have to crush. A cellar you don't have to strike. To get oil you have to crush the olive. To get honey you don't have to crush. Peacefully. You can develop. You can educate. You can teach. You can enlighten. And the water comes out. When they're standing at the threshold of entering into the land, now is the time to speak to them, not to smite them. And yet, Moshe Rabbeinu struck the rock. He didn't speak to the rock. Moshe Rabbeinu, the great leader, who was so deeply connected with his nation, the faithful and loyal shepherd who shepherded the flock for decades upon decades and stood up for them, in their most difficult and challenging moments, when the master of the universe, the Rebbeinu Shalom himself said, I'm going to exterminate them. There's no need for me with them. I don't need them. Let them perish. And Moshe Rabbeinu stood up and rebelled and shook the heavens and threatened God, so to speak. He once told them in Siki Sisa, if you don't forgive them, delete me from your Torah. Mecheni no mesifrich. Moshe Rabbeinu revolutionized the heavens for the Jewish people. He led them with his whole soul and his whole heart. Saw them in their most beautiful moments of grace and exaltation. And saw them in their lowest state of complete confusion, apathy, or even complete rebellion. At this state, he still saw them as a tzur, 
not as a seller. So he didn't speak to the rock, he struck the rock. It wasn't just a physical rock he struck. It represented, it was a metaphor, it was a parable which captured his relationship with the Jewish people. He struck the rock and he didn't speak to the rock and that's why he did it twice. What is the difference between striking and speaking? The difference is simple. Speaking, you speak once. Striking, you always have to strike twice. With your own children. If you're communicating a message to your children that they appreciate and understand, you have to say it once. But if you're communicating a message which they're not interested in understanding or they don't really get, you're basing it on your power and your authority. Once usually is insufficient. When something does not come from you yourself, when something has to be imposed on you, then you need at least twice. But when I speak to you, I'm just revealing your inner potential, the water that's in you. I only have to say it once. And this is brought out beautifully in the Klayokar. The Klayokar, you have it in your sources, number four. The Klayokar puts it, he says, in Parshish Chukas, he says, God was showing him that it's not right to strike with a rod only for a young boar. But when somebody matures, don't strike, don't scream. If somebody is not going to listen to the voice and he has to be struck, there's no question that the moment things get easier, he'll go back to his old self. Just as he had to strike the rock twice, and the rock did not obey and respond to the first smiting, because anything that is accomplished through striking and force is never achieved swiftly. You always have to do it and do it again, because the recipient is not interested, he's forced, he doesn't respond swiftly. And if you do it once, you say it once, fine, but say it again. And the moment you stop saying it, he's going to go back to his old self. And you have to once again reinitiate the entire process. But if you explain and you enlighten and you teach that he understands or she understands, it becomes their own experience and property. Now you don't have to do it twice anymore. Moshe Rabbeinu, who was so connected to the people throughout their journey, did not now make that transformation to a new generation. The old generation died out in the desert to a new generation which changed, which was metamorphosized from Tzur to Selah. And perhaps the loyal leader did not want to make the change. He did not want to display the flaw and the primitive, underdeveloped components of the people. he liberated from subjugation and slavery. It's true there were two generations. The first generation of Jews were bitter slaves. Crushed under the rod of Pharaoh. Crushed under the tyranny and subjugation of the Egyptians. And they came to freedom. But they were slaves. Now there was a new generation generation of free people 
destined to enter into a new land and create a new society for themselves, not wander in a desert, but actually create an infrastructure and a new society. It was a new generation. Maybe Moshe did not want to bring out the flaw of the old generation. And so, instead of speaking to the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? He struck the rock. What Hashem tells Moshe at the end of this story was not so much a punishment, a penalty, as much as a clarification that he is not supposed to go into the land of Israel. It's not part of his destiny. He was the leader of his generation. He was the teacher of all generations. But he was the leader of a particular people in a particular milieu, in particular circumstances. He was a leader of his time. He internalized the energy of the time. It became his. He was one with his people. And at this moment, he would not make that transformation from the model of Tzur to the model of Sela, from the model of striking to the model of talking. Furthermore, the Master suggests, at this moment, he even lowered the spiritual level of the Jews by Moshe striking the rock, not speaking to the rock. They themselves now identified themselves as Sur, not as Sela. They fell to a lower level. There was a fascinating Medrash in Parshish Chukas, Medrash Rabba. The Medrash says, why did Moshe not go into Eretz Yisrael, to the land? And the answer of the Medrash is, the Medrash tells a story. There was a shepherd who went out to shepherd his flock, and somebody came and stole all the flock. And the shepherd comes back to the palace, and the shepherd wants to go into the palace, and the king tells the shepherd, Vasit upon him that this hub, and it won't look good. Everybody will say, you abandoned the, sh- the, the flock. You are guilty for the fact that they're not here. They will blame you. You should not be coming into the palace. God tells Moses when he wants to go into the land of Israel, your whole generation died in the desert. How will it look if you come into the land? You remain in the desert and when you'll come with them into the land when Mashiach comes and everybody will come back to life. What's the meaning of this Medrash? The Torah tells us in Chukah that God made a decree that Moses doesn't come into the land as a punishment for the story with the water. Here we have another explanation. Because his generation did not come in, he must remain with his generation. But the truth is, according to the above explanation, both ideas are the same. The reason he struck the rock and he didn't speak to the rock was because of his intimate oneness with his generation. He would not let go of them. He would not bid farewell to them. God says, you belong to them. They belong to you. You remain with your people in the desert. Somebody else will take this generation into the land. One day you'll bring them in to the land. They tell the story 
that when the chief commissioner of the Kaisel, of the Western world, the Kaisel Amaravi, the British chief commissioner, Ashraf Cook, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Hakoyen, Cook Zechernel of what is the great commotion about the Western world? Why are the Jews so eager to go there and visit there and pray there and pour their heart out? It's rocks, it's a bunch of stones. What's the uniqueness of the Kaisel Avant? It's a wall. And Rav Cook told him, listen, I want to tell you something. There are stones, there are rocks that are as soft and can melt away like butter. And there are hearts that are hard as rocks. Sometimes there's a stone which is soft. And sometimes there's a heart which is a rock. Of course, explaining, intimating to him that the western wall was made up of rocks but it was rocks which embraced the tears, the sweat, and the blood of the Jewish people. And sometimes there are human hearts which become completely rock-like, unresponsive, unmoved, even cruel and completely apathetic. Now interesting. Take the word Sur, 296. Take the word Sela, 160. Together, they make up the word Kaisel, the Western Wall. Because Jews throughout the generations, when they came to the place of the Kaisel Amaravi, the Western Wall, where the Shekhinah, the dwelling, the divine presence of the Holy Temple still remained, the holiness did not go away from the Western Wall. There, whether you were a Sela or you were a Tzur, the flow of tears, the inner water of the soul, came gushing forth, came pouring out. Because ultimately, in every rock, there is water. Sometimes it's deep inside and you can easily expose it. Sometimes it's very, very concealed. Sometimes you have to speak to the rock. Sometimes you have to strike to the rock. There's always the ability to extract water. Every rock can produce water. Every rock has within himself or herself a soul which can produce waters of enlightenment and inspiration. But the key is, you have to know when to strike the rock, and you have to know when to speak to the rock. Good night. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate. Mm-hmm.